Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate his love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. I'm glad you came today. Anyone else glad they... Okay, good way to spend good way to spend a morning and uh, thank you for spending your long weekend with us those of you who are visiting or down here on the long weekend who chose to come here rather than do the triathlon um, well well done it's good to see so many in Canterbury families here today that somehow snuck out of uh, of the triathlon down there but um, we're going to uh, let you uh, let you we're uh, going to have a good morning this morning and then I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend here so there you go, my name's Chad, if you're visiting, it's my privilege to speak this morning uh, at this part of our meeting. We like to open our Bibles and to uh, trust that God speaks to us in that way. So if you've got your Bible today, why don't you, uh, why don't you open it up and uh, I have something quite, I hope, helpful to share today. I'm going to start a mini-series for autumn, because in case you don't realise, it is autumn already. Um, Wednesday night, Louis and I drove to Mount Barker and uh, we had a friend leading a church there, a church called Glorify. Many of you who are uh, part of this church obviously would know of them. And they asked me to share there uh, at a Wednesday night training uh, night on how to understand and teach the Bible, something that my latest book is about. And so it's something quite, I'm quite passionate um, about. And it was interesting, I found a few people there who uh, said that they are following our reading through the Bible in a year plan on YouTube. So some of us last year read through the whole Bible in a year in a chronological way and I did tutorials, video tutorials week after week for the year to help people read through. Some of you are doing it at the moment and it's nice to hear other people around the place also undertaking that. It made me go back onto YouTube and check the hits on the videos and what's really fascinating to me is that we've got our biggest views on Genesis right at the start, week one, week two, week three, week four and by the time we hit Leviticus it just drops like <laughs> significantly but when I order them on the most popular videos it's the first five, you know, it's like Genesis and Exodus, okay, you've got Moses there, you've got the Genesis story, people somehow work their way through Job, okay, eventually and, uh, and then the next top rated video is Revelation. Okay, so it's like, and in fact, I know some of you here who kept coming to me last year and going, I, I couldn't make it past Leviticus, but I'm waiting to see what you say about Revelation. <laughs> so I know why some of the, that, that is the, the case. But one of the fascinating things about um, the book of Revelation, and one of the reasons that it is uh, quite uh, often dialogue discussed and debated and disagreed upon, is about how essentially you're meant to understand it. And one of the main aspects of the book of Revelation are there are three lots, help me Lord, there are three lots of seven judgments, okay? The first lot is described as seven trumpets, I think, and then seals on the scrolls and then bowls. Could be the other way around, not too sure. If I'm wrong, just say it publicly on Facebook, okay? So, <laughs> um, so there's three lots of seven Judgments, And one of the big disagreements about how we're meant to understand them is this. Are those three lots of seven, do they take place consecutively? So, does the trumpets happen and then the seals and then the bowls? So, in fact, there are 21 separate events. Or, do they happen concurrently? So, do the seven bowls and the seven trumpets 
and the seven seals. Are they all actually the same thing? It's just three ways of describing the one thing. Okay. So if I said to you, I have a son called Jesse. My eldest is called Jesse. I have a child called Jesse. Okay, do I have three Jessies? Okay, now I've got one. I've just used different ways of describing the one thing. So some people believe that there are actually just seven events, but there's three different pictures or three different ways to explain it. So they're not consecutive. There's not 21. It's concurrent. And today, I'm not speaking about Revelation. (laughs) Today, I want to adopt that concurrent uh, mode, okay, and I want to begin a series, uh, basically a seven-point sermon that will take me a few weeks, so just relax. That's right, it's not 21, no, no, no. But I want to do it essentially in three ways, with three separate hats on. The first thing I want to do is I want to speak to you as a Bible teacher, and I want us to open the Scriptures to the book of Acts And I want to exposit them. I want to learn something about the church in a city in the Bible called Antioch. And I want us essentially to walk away with some good head knowledge, some good learning of a real-life historical church in the Bible called Antioch and look at seven key characteristics of that church. I want to put on the hat of a teacher and I want to do that today. But at the same time, I want to speak as the pastor of this church and I want to speak about seven core DNA distinctives that God has called us as Bayside Church to walk in. Okay, I want to speak to y'all who call this church your home, put on my pastor hat and say, Bayside, this is who God has called us to be. Bayside, this is what we are on about. And then at the same time, parfait as Leah's, at the same time, I want to speak as a preacher and I want to preach truth that is not just historically true of one church and is not just particularly pertinent to us as Bayside, but I want to speak to you that are here on public holiday weekend. I want to speak about general good truths about the church that Jesus, I believe, Jesus is building around the world and seven characteristics of a healthy church, whether it's historical, whether it's here and now, or whether it's the church that you belong to, wherever you've come from this long weekend. I want to speak generally of good truth about what healthy church environment looks like using that example. So I'm going to preach over these next few weeks, okay? I'm going to preach, I'm going to teach, and I'm going to pastor. Sometimes I pastor. So I want to do that. I want to minister to your head. I want to minister to your hands. This is why we do the things we do. This is what we are involved in here at Bayside. And somewhere I want to minister to your heart and hopefully give you some hope of a great picture of something that I believe Jesus is doing with this church. So have you found Acts chapter 11 yet? Have you got your Bible? If you don't, we're going to have it on the screen and uh, you can read along. You can read along there. Good morning. Good morning. Acts 11. Um, The book of Acts uh, is basically part two of a two-volume series. Okay, Luke, or whoever wrote Luke, uh, is the same guy that wrote Acts, and it's like volume one, volume two. And they're both about 30 to 33 years long each. Okay, Luke basically tells the story of Jesus about 4 or 5 BC to 30 AD. Okay, that could have kind of history, 30, 33 years approximately. The book of Acts does something similar. It basically tells the story of the next 30 to 
33 years, all right? And it split, splits into three big sections. The first eight or nine chapters and the last eight or nine chapters all take place in a period of two to three years. And what happens right at the start is that the church is birthed in the city of Jerusalem, okay? That's where um, Jesus was killed, basically. It birthed in the city of Jerusalem and the Christian community there grows and they go through all kinds of ups and downs, signs, wonders, miracles, preaching, persecution, the whole package happens there over about a two to three year period. On the other side of the book of Acts, we've got the story of Paul the Apostle and he goes through a basically a trumped up, prison trial, like a trial, through the Roman court system and ends up going to the capital city uh, in Rome and that's sort of the last eight or nine chapters of the book. But in the middle of the book, we've got 25 years of history, okay, in the middle of the book. And this is all about how the good news of Jesus went out of Jerusalem to a whole bunch of uh, non-Jewish people, okay, and how Paul rose as a figure in those 25 years and explains why he ends up in prison in Rome. So there's basically three sections to the book. What we are reading is in this middle section here, this kind of big 25-year period. Okay, so when you read the book of Acts, there's 30 years of history in there. Okay, this 25-year period of history where the church in Jerusalem um, basically was enduring persecution and a whole bunch of people got out of Dodge. Okay, they got ahead of town and they scattered, but they shared the message of Jesus everywhere that they went. So that's the part that we're picking up in. Is that okay? Got some context there? All right, here we go. Uh, Acts chapter 11. I'm going to read verse 19. Okay. Page 1031. Now those who had been scattered... By the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, okay, he was stoned to death, these people travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and they began to speak also to Greek people, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. I was chatting with someone this week about repentance and how repentance is not so much what you turn from as it is what you turn to. Okay, Repentance is turning to the Lord. Okay, Whatever you're turning from, that's fine, yes, but you're turning to Jesus. And this is what these people are doing. They're believing and turning to Him. Verse 22, news of this reached the church back in Jerusalem and so they sent a guy called Barnabas to the city of Antioch. When he arrived and he saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. This is the introduction to a historical church in this part of the book of Acts called Antioch. Who likes some history? First century, this is when this is written, okay, 2,000 years ago. Um, the Roman Empire had some pretty big cities, okay? Rome was really well ahead of its time. When Rome fell about three, 400 AD, something like that, it had about a million people. Uh, in it, and there, it wasn't until the 1850s that the world had another city that big. It wasn't until like 
one and a half thousand years later, that the world had a city as big as Rome. So they were really ahead of their time. And the Roman Empire had three major, or the three biggest cities were these. You had Rome, a place called Alexandria, which is in the top of Egypt, and then we had a place called Antioch. And this place, this is basically where Syria is today, okay, Antioch. And it's named after a general uh, from the Greek from the mm, Greek Empire, let's say, called Antichus. No, it wasn't. Called Seleucus. Here's some history. At the end of the Old Testament, we've got a big empire called Babylon, okay? And they're taken over by a group called the Persians. Well, the Persians were really nice to God's people and they send them back to Jerusalem. But a couple of hundred years later, a, a Greek guy called Alexander the great, he comes in and he takes over the Persian Empire at 33 years of age, he dies. And because he dies so young, after only three years of leading, his kingdom is split up into four groups, okay? We know that Daniel prophesied this would happen because Alexander the Great was a goat that had four horns come out of his head. So out of the Greek Empire, four leaders came out because Alexander died so early, he didn't have a successor to hand over to. And one of those guys was a guy called Seleucus or something like that. And so he took over a quarter of the empire and his empire became known as the Seleucids. Well, it was them that established this city in Antioch. It was basically the name of his dad and they established this city. It was about half a million people there in the first century. So it was a major, major city and it was about 500 kilometres away from Jerusalem. One of the things I tell people when you read the book of Acts, read it with a map okay read it with a map so when J jerusalem church say wow there's heaps of good stuff happening in antioch they made barnabas travel 500 kilometers to go check it out on foot that's right that's right what how far away is muldura that's about five six i don't know it's like saying to rob there's a great church happening why don't you go walk for three weeks to go uh check out how it's going but that's basically what the uh, church in Antioch, the, the city of Antioch was like. And it was very multi-ethnic. Okay? It was, again, a big city, well ahead of its time, multi-ethnic. And so the church that grew up there represented their area, Jew and non-Jewish people. The church here in the city is a bit of a standout in the scriptures for a couple of reasons. But here's one of the things I noticed in these opening verses. It says there in verse 20 that some people who left Jerusalem, began the church in Antioch. Some people began it. In other words, this dynamic church, it becomes one of the most significant churches in the Scripture, was started by a bunch of nobodies. It doesn't mention their name. These weren't people, men, women, with great profile or prominence. It wasn't one of the great leaders, James, Peter, James and John, it wasn't Thaddeus, it wasn't one of the original... It was just some of them who left Jerusalem started this church in Antioch. It was started by normal, everyday believers like you and I. But these no-name believers had the hand of the Lord with them, had God's hand upon them. And what one of the first evidences that Barnabas sees when he rocks up there to check them out after walking for three weeks, okay, is it says he saw a great number of people and it told him that this is evidence of the grace of God 
in this place. The first evidence, the first characteristic of this church, evidenced, which is evidence of God's hand being upon them, was that this was a church of growth. This was a church that was growing. A great number of people came to the Lord. What began as a handful of everyday disciples grew to a large community that got the attention of Jerusalem. Growth, and particularly growth with new people coming to Jesus, is the first thing mentioned as a visible sign of the evidence of the grace of God with this community. A couple of years ago, we, in 2017, we kind of set a prophetic theme for the year, and it was based around the word grow. How many of you remember this picture? Growing as individuals is something that we really take seriously as a church family. To take responsibility for my own personal growth. And we spoke that year about the importance, number one, of growing down. Any plant only will grow because it's healthy and a plant will only get healthy if its roots are growing down. The first aspect of growth, of me personally, Chad, taking the, the, the issue of growth seriously for my life is that I need to put my roots down. Ephesians 3, put your roots into the love of God. Colossians 2, put your roots into the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Yeah, We grow down. That's how a plant is healthy. We also spoke about the importance of growing with. That God has not just made us plantings of the Lord in isolated aloneness. That God has put plantings of the Lord together. And we addressed the issue that year of assessing who are we growing with? Who are we doing life together with as we give ourselves to growing in the things of God? We looked at growing out, extending our influence and being more effective in our world and we looked at growing up one of the greatest delights i can have as a pastor is to look out and say grow up (laughs) hashtag but growing up means a plant which grows up because it's pointing itself toward the sunlight so growing up is about having our focus set on heaven and getting nearer and closer to him. So we take growth as individuals very seriously as we mature and give ourselves to that. And Barnabas comes to this church and he gives impetus to that growth because it says here that he went to this city and he encouraged them all. He encouraged each of them. Trevor, keep growing. Keep growing. Okay, Leanne, keep going. Keep growing. All right, Joe, keep going. Keep growing. Barnabas encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord. I was reading this week, or actually it was in my book, I was writing about the privilege of being able to teach others the Scripture. And I found this this incredible verse in John where he says, I have no greater joy than knowing that my children are walking in the truth. It is... has great joy for me when I discover truth. But there's no greater joy than seeing that other people are walking in the truth that I've helped them to understand. That's where true joy comes in. You know that, those of you who are parents, know that there's no greater joy when you, you can have personal achievement, but there's no greater joy than watching your kids achieve something and you go, oh yeah, no greater joy than that. What's the point? The point is watching each other grow and being in an environment where we commit ourselves to growth is such an important thing. 
But here in Antioch, we can't get past the fact that growth literally means numerical increase, not just individuals increasing, but the number of individuals increasing in that community. And for some reason, in certain, for some reason, the idea of um, encouraging or aspiring towards, quote, church growth, for some people can be looked upon with a bit of suspicion or scorn. You know, it's true that just because something's bigger, it doesn't make it better. Unless you're in a bakery. No. See, kitchen a bun, smaller is better. If bigger meant better, then obesity wouldn't be a problem. If bigger meant better, those of you who have had melanomas cut off your skin, how many of you know bigger's not better? Bigger's not better. Uh, I'm of the political persuasion that the smaller the government, the better. I, I don't think when it comes to government, the bigger the better when it comes to bureaucracy. So there are not necessarily the bigger the better, but it is true, and while it's true that numerical growth for a church comes with its challenges, of all the challenges a church can face, it's got to be the best one you can have. More people does mean more administration and communication and complexity. More people does mean more variety, which means more preferences, which means more expectations, which means more experiences that we bring to the table, some which complement and some which contradict. And while variety and difference is beautiful when there is unity, sometimes variety and difference, and the more there is, can produce challenges. It's one of the reasons that Jay and I are very purposeful about hanging out with pastors and people who lead churches bigger than us because we want to learn from them we're going to the philippines in a couple of weeks we're going to be hanging out with pastors one of the things we're going to be doing is having meals with people and we ask questions what do you do in this situation what do you do we want to learn from those who are experiencing the complexity of church growth so there are challenges but church growth must first and foremost be seen as an overwhelmingly positive thing yes there are challenges when your business grows but how many of you know growth in a business, pretty well, is a good thing? Yes, there are challenges when your family grows. We've had a few babies born recently. Jordan and Crystal aren't here today. We've had a few babies born recently. Every time a baby is born to a house, adjustments need to be made. Bedtime's a little bit different. Mealtimes are a little bit different. Getting out of the house, Michael McIntyre, is a little bit different. There are challenges and there are obstacles and there are adjustments that need to be made, but those always outweigh the joy of having a new family member. You know, it surprises me. You know, so often we go to a new couple that's never had a baby before and it's quite common for us to say, oh, you don't know what you're in for. Wait till you have sleepless nights. You don't know what you're in for. Three o'clock in the morning, da-da-da-da. You know what? Yes, that's a challenge. But why don't we say you don't know what you're in for? The moment that baby comes out, the exhilaration and the ecstasy and the joy of hearing that cry for the very first time. You don't know what you're in for. To hold a baby that you've held to hold that baby in your arms and on your chest for the very first time. You don't know what you're in for. The joy and the delight of that privilege, because growth is a privilege. 
Yes, there are challenges, but of all the challenges that churches or families can face, I'd rather have that one than divisiveness because that's the challenge. I'd rather have that one than financial mismanagement because that's the challenge. I'd rather have growth as a challenge than infidelity in the leadership because that's the challenge. I'd rather have that than a whole plethora of other challenges that can face a church family. The point is, growth is a good thing. And yes, it comes with its challenge, but it is an absolute privilege that we should embrace. Because bigger can mean better. A couple of weeks ago, we had two people share their stories about how they've come to know Jesus in the last 12 months. Two people, what could be better than that? <laughs> Three. Four would be better than that. In the last 12 to 18 months, we've had two couples on this platform share about how God has healed their marriage, one from divorce, one from three years of separation, and bring them together. What could be better than seeing two marriages completely... Three? As long as you know someone in an estranged marriage that should be together, then more is better. More, more is better. Growth is a good thing. And there should be, I think, I believe, a hunger in our heart to see a sign and evidence of the grace of God. Lord, I want to see your grace evidenced in our church family. I have room in my heart for you to add people to our church family. Add people because growth is a good thing and I'm willing to embrace the challenge of it. Amen. What's the point? Growth is good. And it's the first sign of a healthy church. One of our pillars as a church family, the first one up there is growth. It says this, with God, our creator and caretaker, we believe in organic life. We believe in colour. We believe in creativity. And we believe that fruitfulness and increase is naturally supernatural. Naturally supernatural. Should we move on? Next verse. I'm not doing seven points today. Just relax. All right? Verse 25. Verse 25, let's continue. Then Barnabas, who's just been sent to Antioch, now goes to a place called Tarsus to look for Saul. Who is Saul? Becomes known as Paul the Apostle. Okay, yep. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. In fact, the disciples were first called Christians right there in Antioch. Thanks to the ministry and part of Saul, Paul and Barnabas. There's two things significant about these verses. Number one is the emergence of Saul. And number one is the emergence of a new identity for this Christian community called Christians, basically. Okay? In fact, it's one of the last times we see the word disciple in the book of Acts. One of the interesting things about reading the Bible progressively or chronologically is you witness a change in language. And over the years, as the Bible story, the New Testament story continues, the word disciple that's used a heck of a lot in the Gospels is decreasingly used in the book of Acts. And so by the time you get to the Paul's letters, you ha- I don't think you, s- you might see the word disciple used maybe once. Did people stop following Jesus? No, 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 no. 
but greater revelation came as to the identity of these followers. They weren't just disciples of a teacher, they were sons, they were saints, they were holy people, they were God's bride, they were God's body, they were stones in a living temple. All these other identities began to emerge in Revelation. So you actually see the word disciple decline. Okay, that was a rabbit trail, forget about it. We see two things. First of all, we see the emergence of Paul. What's interesting in the book of Acts is that this is the first mention of Paul for 10 years. He came to know Jesus over here in the book of Acts in chapter sort of 8 and 9 where he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. He goes into the city in Jerusalem and he gets persecuted. In fact, in, in first they don't welcome him, but then they do, they're welcoming him. He starts preaching and the Jewish people, the people of his own religious community, really start harassing him. So badly, they need to put him into a basket to lay him out of the city and he disappears. And for 10 years, you hear nothing of him. Paul, Saul, goes into basically a self-imposed exile. We read about this in Galatians because he said, I, this happened and then 14 years later, I did this. There's this, like, this decade-long gap in the story of Paul where basically, he didn't plant any churches to our knowledge, he wasn't part of any community. He went back to his hometown and for all we know, he made tents and he searched the scriptures and he had encounters with God because it was in this 10-year period of self-imposed exile that his gospel began to be formed, that his one-off encounter with Jesus turned into heavenly, third-level third heaven encounters that he had with the Lord, where he saw things in heaven that no man could even think to describe. It was in this time that he gathered the Scriptures together, searching them to work out how the Jesus he met on that Damascus road is, is the one promised in the Hebrew Bible. It's in those 10 years he formulated his message. And Barnabas finds Paul in isolation, who was reading who is researching, who is increasing in his revelation, but he wasn't sharing it with anybody. He wasn't reproducing himself. He wasn't participating in any community. It took Barnabas to come to him and say, listen, mate, we need what you got. He brings him to the Antioch church and it is there that Paul wah, comes into his own, where those 10 years of exile began to pay off as he shared what he had with other people and his influence became exponential. The gospel exploded. He was a big, gifted person. But that gift did not find its place until Barnabas took him and brought him into that church community. What Peter and the Jerusalem church began, Paul and the Antioch church ex expressed throughout the known world. And it was because of the revelation that Paul carried? Yeah, he knew his Bible and he knew what it was to encounter heaven, yes. But it was also because of the relationship that he had in that local church community. Some of us know what it's like to have a, a wilderness experience. Saul had given his life to a spiritual community. He'd given the best years of his life. And at some point in his journey, he'd received something from God. He'd met the one that the very scriptures he preached had spoken of. And he wanted to move on in his journey. 
And yet the very community that he'd loved and given himself for rejected him. The very community that he'd called home his whole life didn't want to have anything to do with him and in fact demeaned him and wanted to kill him. And he was thrust into a place where he didn't know where he belonged. Some of you know what that's like. It's kind of like the Exodus motif where God's people are in Egypt and they've served that country really well. The only reason Egypt was as prosperous as it was was because Uncle Joseph, our ancestor, made it prosperous. This, this city that we've given ourselves to for the last couple of hundred years is only as good as it is because we've served here. And now all of a sudden, something changes and we become the ones that are being persecuted for nothing that we've done wrong. Those people God delivered and before they went into a promised land, they had a time in the wilderness. This is a common experience. But God's intent, obviously, as we know, was to take them out of something and into a land of milk and honey and fruitfulness. His purpose for them was not to camp in the wilderness. Yeah? Now for them, that journey might have, could have only just taken a few weeks. But they pitched their tent and they stayed in that wilderness far too long. Paul had that experience for 10 years. And there's no prescription, because some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have got friends who are in this place right now. There's no prescription on what that period can look like. But what we do know is that God's intent is to have people take the experiences that they have and contribute to a community again. Because it was here in this period of Paul's life where those things that he learned in that, that space and the things that he learned in his decades of Judaism really exploded and come to the fore. God called Paul to a place of community and it was there he thrived again and that church was much better because of him eh? a few years ago I was sitting with Gary Gary and Zella Watts and they took him, took him out for lunch later and Gary said I feel like I've got a word for your church he said I had a picture of a, spot, a wheel like on a um uh, a cart, a horse sort of cart, you know, with the spokes. Can someone please get me a coffee? Um, <laughs> with the spokes. And he said, I feel like your future as a church is God's going to be adding ministries to you that have their own sphere of influence, but are connected here. And it's not like they are taking the wheel somewhere else. They're added in, but they already come with their own kind of influence and giftings and etc uh, etc et I look at someone like Rob Maureen you know Rob Maureen preach in other churches and minister elsewhere every month or so they already have their own sphere of influence and yet when they plug in here they're here when they're gone they're gone that is what how the church in Antioch operated you've got a guy like Paul who comes with an incredible gift plugs in and adds to this church and uses that as a home or from there as that home base goes out in his own ministry influence why did I say that? I can't remember. <laughs> the problem is I'm wearing too many hats, you see, and I don't know whether I'm a pastor, a teacher or a preacher right now. 
Finished. The last thing. This introduces... No, I'm not selling homes, okay? It's... The second thing that this, this passage does is it introduces us, I'll finish with this, to the emergence of the church in Antioch as a gathering place for Bible teaching. The first characteristic we see in this church was a place of growth. The second major characteristic, it was a place of gathering. We value growth here at Bayside Church, Pastor's Hat, and we also value, it, value the meeting together the coming together and the gathering together. You know, it says there in that verse, it says, they gathered the church. And because we're English, we miss a lot of these subtleties, which is why you need to read the Bible on the internet with hyperlinks. It says there in the Greek, they synagogued with the church. They gathered, they synagogued with the church. They gathered the church together. They synagogued with them. Many of you know the word church... In the Bible is ecclesia or ecclesia. It means a called together people. It means an assembly. It means a gathering. And when the, church, when the Bible uses this term, it essentially speaks of the church in two ways. First of all, there is church with a capital C. It is a church that is universal. It is a church that is invisible. It is a church that is eternal. How many of you know you are part, you are, belo- you are part of an assembly that you cannot see with your naked eye. Because Hebrews 12 says, unlike the people in Exodus, we've not come to a physical mountain that can be touched. We've come to a heavenly city. We've come to a holy heavenly mountain. We've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Names are written in heaven. You are part of an invisible eternal church that is connected with people over eons of time that is connected with saints living and dead we are part of the universal church capital c it is that church jesus said i will build my church one church jesus has capital c and yet it's also true that there are churches that are local and so paul can say to the church in that city and the church in that city and the church in that city can write to Galatia and say to the churches in that region. John can write Revelation and say, I'm going to write letters to seven churches. There is a church with a capital C. There is a church with a little c. And both of which we are to embrace and have an expression in our life. This one's invisible. This one's universal. This one's eternal. This one's spiritual and heavenly and is all-encompassing. This one is practical. This one is flesh. This one is hands-on. I see you. You see me. We're touching one another. We're living together. We're doing life together. And both of those assemblies are a core part of the biblical ingredient. There is a holy city. There is a holy, invisible temple. And yet Paul says to the Corinthian church, you are God's temple. You, this thing and that thing, built together, real people, demonstrating what is true in the invisible world. God is a gardener, and so growth is creative and organic. And yet God is also a builder who is building a temple. And so he's also an architect, a God for which there is order and structure involved. And this church believed in gathering as they gathered to Paul and they, they encountered his teaching week after week for a year. He does the same thing in Ephesus. He gathers people together. We believe in gathering.
Amen? Do not neglect the meeting together because you are demonstrating something of the invisible reality of a church that is together, multicolored, multifaceted, multidimensional. Isn't that what Jay spoke about last week? The multicolors of God's community coming together. And that's why, while we're all different and we all come with our peculiarities, especially some of you, very peculiarities, <laughs> we all come with our mixed experience. Together, in harmony, we form a beautiful picture that displays God's manifest presence. It's a public holiday. So I'm going to call it there. Three things. As a teacher, I hope that today you leave with having learnt something, having seen something in the Scripture, having want, wanting to know more. When we read stories like this in the book of Acts, these verses aren't prescriptive, they're just descriptive. It doesn't say we need to be like this. It just says, whoa, this is what this church was like and we can take encouragement from that. I hope that you take some information in your head today because your head matters to me and your head matters to God. That's why he tells you to do change the way you think because your head matters. I'm hoping today that those of you who call Bayside their home, your, this home understand that we value growth and we value gathering and that's something you can put your hands to. You can say, you know what, I want to participate in those things. I'll prioritise and help those things because I know that is part of the DNA and the core of where this church is going and what I want to be a part of. I want to help in that, uh, encourage that environment. And I hope maybe, although it's not really my strength, that God today would minister to your heart. That you would see something. Um, the potential for a community that can change a city, that can change a world. And those of you visiting from Adelaide, those of you are part of other churches, those of you, you can, your heart will be ministered to for your city. That, you know, our city could be like Antioch, where great numbers of people come to the Lord, where great numbers of people, and where the disciples are given a name in that city because everyone knows about them. Isn't that a profound thing? They were first called Christians there. Not by themselves, by those around them. Other people called them Christians because the city knew that they were there. I hope that does something for your heart. Why don't you stand your feet? You can make me finish now. Do you want to pray for us? Hey. Do you want to pray for us? Is this on? I do, but before I do pray for you, um, last week when we were in the pre-prayer service, I just felt like um, this was a really fertile ground, this church. And you know, when you've got a really fertile garden, you can take the soil from that garden and you can put it on a really dry plant and you can mix it in. Have you, can you see that image? I don't know how you're feeling today, but I am going to speak to your heart for a minute. You know, it doesn't matter what church you're from or whether you're a part of our church. If you are actually feeling like you're in a wilderness experience, I want to encourage you to get online. Listen, download messages and allow the fertile soil that is within this church to start pouring into your life 
so that your soil becomes fertile again. I believe that there is going to be great growth this year, but great growth comes about because you're planted in good soil. So, so although some of you can't be here physically, you can always be hearing the word of God and growing in that. Hope that encourages someone. Maybe pick up Chad's Bible reading plan. <laughs> Maybe listen to sermons. Whatever it is, trust that God is putting in good soil into your life again. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for what you are doing in this place um, and out into the world. I just, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the peace that passes all understanding. I thank you for the strength and the power that you bring to each and every one of our lives. I thank you that every day we have the opportunity to stand in your presence and be watered by your love. I thank you that we have always the opportunity to stand in good soil and for that good soil to be refertilized. And I thank you more than anything that you sent your son and every day we have the opportunity to stand in your light and to grow closer to who you are. Let your heaven come closer. Let it be in our hearts. Let it flow from our mouths so that others may experience you. I thank you for the growth that you have built in this church, but the growth that is coming. I thank you for the new salvations. We are so excited to welcome them in. And I thank you, God, that you gather us together because I leave every week feeling excited and encouraged by you. God, you are so good. Pour out your blessings on this place and uh, let's have an awesome week this week. Amen. Awesome. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day.